Good morning. Ooh, a little echo today. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Indelible Grace Church. And I think since moving to California this past June, this is probably the coldest day um, since I have been here. Uh, maybe that's the wind. And uh, thank you whether you're watching from home or here with us at the park um, for braving the weather. Um, I hope you guys stay warm. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series on spiritual disciplines. And this morning, we're going to be looking at justice and mercy. So if you would, whether you're here at the park or at home, if you'd turn with me to Micah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses this morning. And as you're turning there, you can find it towards the end of the Old Testament between Jonah and Nahum. But I would like to encourage each of you, as we've been talking about spiritual disciplines, um, to be an active reader. And so what I mean by that is studies have countlessly shown time and time again that when we read things on a phone, on our Kindle, uh, something I do a lot of, we don't retain as much information. We don't retain where it is in a book. And so I'd like to challenge you to consider bringing your Bible with you or if you're watching at home to make sure when you're getting ready to turn on the live stream to, to set your Bible out and to bring it with you. Now, this especially helps younger readers as they're reading the Word, gives you more familiarity with the Word. You can mark things, you can annotate, you can uh, put a bookmark there to come back later. So that's my first encouragement um, for you guys as we're talking about spiritual disciplines, that consider making this a discipline in your life of bringing your Bible to church. Uh, The second part is if you're still finding your way to Micah, I'd like to say one other thing before we read the passage, and that is in the book of Micah, because we're jumping into just one little part of it today, In the book, we read of three different cycles that happen. And in the book of Micah, there's cycles of doom and cycles of hope. And so as we're hopping into Micah chapter 6, we're hopping in in the the beginning of the third cycle. And this is a passage of doom. This is a passage of judgment. And what we're actually going to see is a very legal passage. It reads a little bit like a court case. And so when a prophet would, would come to a town... This was not a good sign. And so as we're getting ready to to listen to Micah, this is important context for us. When a prophet would come, they're coming to rebuke. They're coming to call God's people to repentance. Much like even the, the letters that we have in the New Testament, there's occasions for why they're written. And oftentimes there's encouragement, but also rebuke. And we see the same thing here in Micah as we turn and look at it. And so we're going to read the passage here in just a second. But to set the stage a little bit more, in Micah chapter 6, we have God portrayed as a judge, Micah as the prosecutor, the people as the defendant, and the the mountains of creation called forth as the witness. And so if you would, with me now, we will read this passage together. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. Um, Let us now read together God's holy and infallible word. This is the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aram, and Miram. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shitham to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord, and it was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, um, we are gathered as your people to, to sing songs of praise, to glorify you, to have fellowship with one another, and to hear your word, Lord, that we might be faithful to it, that we might be changed by your word. And this morning, Lord, as we look at the spiritual disciplines of justice and mercy, Lord, I pray we would do so with soft hearts, ears ready to hear, and a desire to listen to what you have commanded us. Amen. As we begin a sermon on justice and mercy, I think it's helpful at the start to kind of lay some parameters. There's a lot in scripture in which we could talk about justice and mercy. And so I think for some of us, we really wish the church talked more about justice and mercy. Even over this last calendar year, if you think over the news, we have seen a lot of injustice. We've seen a lot of crying out for there to be justice and mercy. We have seen a lot when we want the church to be more involved in it. That's one of the ways that we we want to talk about justice. It's one of the ways that scripture also talks about justice. But this morning, we're not going to be focusing on that type of justice. That'll be kind of part of it as we look at the application. But the main focus we're looking at is the discipline of how are we actually to be. Because justice and mercy, we actually are reflecting God's character. So even then, one other thing I want to say at the, the start here is that for some of us, as we're talking about spiritual disciplines, if you surveyed a lot of different books on spiritual disciplines, you might not even see it in the list of spiritual disciplines. So you could perhaps be someone thinking, what is it even doing in this series? And I would, I would argue that this is a topic that is near and dear to the heart of our God. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we see again and again a God who is the justifier of his people, but also does not let the guilty go unpunished, who is merciful and gracious, abounding in love, in steadfast love, which is one of the things we'll actually look at today as well. And so while there's a lot we could talk about with justice, we are primarily focusing on that spiritual discipline of justice. We're not going to be focusing on a civil or legal justice To talk about that, we need to to look more at the the Pentateuch and God's laws for his people. We're talking more, how does it actually look like for us to live as God's people, as a people who practice justice and mercy? So, if you would, we're going to start. I have two points outlined for you guys in your bulletin. The first, these both come from our text in Micah this morning. The first is from verse 1, that we would hear what the Lord says. And then we'll have a second point which is what does the Lord require of you? And so if you look back at the text with me, we see this, I outlined it for you, that we have this almost courtroom-like drama that's happening where God is the judge. Micah the prophet has come as the persecutor, the the prosecutor, not persecutor, sorry, the prosecutor to the people to, to question them. And we see this dialogue come forth where God is using the prophet to rebuke the people. And so, 
one of the things, this, this indictment, this lawsuit that God has against his people, that we need to start with this, what, what's going on? And this is where that justice and mercy comes in. See, God's people in the days of Micah, there's been over 500 years of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, and, and God's people are about to be led into exile for their covenant breaking. And what we've actually seen, if we were to, to sit and read the whole letter of Micah together this morning, is that we see the, the, these, these facts, these context things throughout the book. And one of them is that the, the kings, the, the, the leaders, are actually stealing from the most poor. See, in, in God's law, he actually established that if a family could sell their land, they could basically rent it. It wasn't actually theirs to give away because the Lord gave it to them. But every seven years, it would be given back on the year of Jubilee. And what we actually have is an issue where the kings are getting richer, they're getting more and more land, and they're refusing to give it back. And we also have mentions of these horrible prophets who are going to other nations and selling a pass of like, hey, our, our God conquered Jericho. He, he led us out of slavery in Egypt. We'll sell you the, the, the right where we'll keep our God away from you. And so it's similar to selling an elevator pass that doesn't need an elevator pass. It's something that's actually not needed. It's an abuse of their power. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this cycle of when, when the leaders, the representative heads are corrupted, that then the people themselves follow suit. And so this indictment that the Lord has against them, they're in practicing every type of injustice. They're not caring for the poorest among them, and they're actually abusing the people that are outside of Israel. They're supposed to be a place that's, that's for the, the whole world to be blessed. And so the, this theft becomes an issue. And so what we see in this cycle in Micah between hope and despair is that God is going to rescue his people we see promises that of the Messiah. We see promises that God is going to come shepherd his people. He's going to come in his perfect justice and mercy, and he's going to be a better king. He is going to be a better prophet. He is not going to be like the corrupt leaders that they've had before. Or as Hebrews 1 says, that long ago and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken by his son. So it, it's building there the anticipation that God is going to do something. And so there's this, this thread of hope throughout the book that God is going to restore his people. And if you look back with me at verse 3, we see this emotional appeal from the Lord as he talks to them. And he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And we see this, this emotion is because there's this covenant relationship. There's this unique and special relationship that God has with his covenant people that he still has with his church to this day. A covenant is something that is far more permanent than an ordinary relationship and far more intimate than a contract. And what we see is that actually God's people, and we're included in that church, God's people are to be his treasured possession. And so their, their covenant breaking, we can see very clearly, it grieves God's heart. And he's crying out, how have I wearied you? What have I done? And so he's going to turn and remind them. Not only is there this case against them for, for the present moment, but he's going to remind them of the things that he has done, the ways in which he has been faithful. And so if you look back with me at verse 4, 
We see, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miram. So we're, we're seeing that the, these people that are the Lord's people that have the mountains called forth as witnesses against them because of the abuses that they're doing. He's reminding them of these better leaders, that God has been faithful to them. He sent them better leaders than the leaders they currently have, but he's also redeemed them. He's bought them back from the slavery in Egypt. And we're 500 years later. This is their, this is their story. This is that their God has redeemed them. And that this special covenant relationship that they had, they'd continue to remember through the Passover of the Lord saving them, that they are his people. Much like in the same fashion that when we come together as a church physically, we get to go to the sacrament of the Lord's table. And we get to remember the redeeming act that God did on the cross. And there's another reminder here that's, that is one of, I think, my favorite stories in the book of Numbers. Look back with me at verse 5. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shitham to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And if you're not very familiar, so Numbers 19 through 22, we have this story of Balaam, who styles himself as a prophet, that he's actually going to, in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord of Israel, he's going to go and curse Israel. And so if you're reading through the book of Numbers, you have their, their wandering and their camping, and then it's basically like they're down in the valley, and it's kind of like in a movie when the camera angle pans out in a way, and you get to see what the bad guy's doing. And so it pans out along the way, and we have Balak, the king, hiring Balaam to curse Israel in the name of their own God. And every single time Balaam goes to open his mouth with a king and the king's guard there, every single time he opens his mouth, he blesses Israel instead. Again and again and again, and you see Balak getting more and more frustrated. Balaam was the man who was rebuked by a donkey. The Lord actually caused the donkey to speak to rebuke him. And to correct him. And we know Balaam's story, if we kept reading, doesn't get much better. But the, the thing that makes this such a wonderful thing in the book of Numbers is because then the story, it's like it zooms back in from seeing what the bad guys are doing on the outside of the valley. It comes back into what Israel's doing. And Israel at that moment was actually being unfaithful to the Lord. But even in their unfaithfulness, this is what the prophet Micah is talking about here, even in their unfaithfulness, in their failing to practice justice, God provided for his people. What someone else intended for cursings and to hurt God's people, God was protecting them even when they didn't know it. So not only was he faithful to redeem them, to buy them back from slavery in Egypt, not only has he sent them good leaders, but also he's protected and cared for them even when they weren't aware of it. And so we see this, this story of Balaam and the talking donkey and the, this prophet and it's actually God turns and uses it to bless his people. He uses it to actually discipline his people. And so if we're looking to, my first point is that we're looking to hear what the Lord says about justice and mercy. And that's first that he, he is the just one. He is the merciful one. He is continuing and abounding in faithfulness. And this is that we might know the righteous acts of the Lord which the, the, refer, the geographical references there of Shitham and Gilgal. So Shitham was the, the place 
that was the last place that Israel camped before going into the promised land. And Gilgal was the first place that Israel camped in the promised land. And so not only was he faithful to free them, faithful to send them good leaders, um, but he was also faithful to them before they were in the promised land. He's faithful to them in the promised land. And these people, God's people historically, they're about to be led out of the promised land into exile. And the point is that God has been faithful to them when they weren't in the promised land before. And so this is a big deal as we're talking about justice and mercy, because we're talking about the character of our God and what the Lord actually says about it. And we constantly, we, we fall short of living as God told us to live. Just like Israel, we fail to practice justice and mercy. And we're still kind of, we're going to keep zoning in on what that justice and mercy actually looks like throughout the sermon. But we often fail to practice this spiritual discipline because we haven't heard what the Lord has to say about a topic. If we were to all right now take out a piece of paper and write down a definition of justice, and then on a second piece of paper write down a definition of mercy, I imagine for most of us there'd be some overlap, but we'd also emphasize different things. We all wouldn't write the exact same thing. And this is why as God's people, to talk about justice and mercy, we need to start with his word. How does God define justice? How does God define mercy? Isaiah 55, uh, 8 through 9 says that for as, high as God's, or for as high as God is in the heavens, so are his ways and thoughts higher than our ways and thoughts. And so church, we, we should not be looking to live with our own personal definitions of justice or mercy, but we should look in God's word like the prophet says. We should hear what the Lord says and then seek to actually reflect our God's character. We're actually known, we actually make known his justice and his mercy by how we actually carry those out. And so we can't afford for it to be something we just do haphazard. We need to be intentional about it because we were bought at a price and we are no longer our own. God does not save his people in the Old Testament or even in the church now so that they can just go live unto themselves, do whatever they want, or abuse power. That is clearly not what Scripture teaches. And why there's so much we could talk about of justice in the Bible, one of the biggest things that we see is that God actually saves his people and he saves them for something. So it's not that they can just continue on in this abusive cycle that Israel has had. They actually need to change. They actually need to have a life that reflects the fellowship of the God they worship. Or as Jesus summarizes the the whole law in the New Testament, that we, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and then love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the issue when we're talking about justice and mercy. We're actually failing to care for and to love our neighbor which we're going to get to in just a moment still here because we're going to then in a couple of minutes still talk about what God has commanded us. And notice that there's nothing new when we read that passage that God is commanding his people to do. Rather, it's, I've already told you how to do this. The issue for Israel at this moment as they're about to go into exile is they hadn't actually listened to God's word. It hadn't changed them. And it led to them breaking the covenant. It led to them abusing the poor It led to bad leaders not getting called out by the people. It led to people becoming apathetic. And so when a prophet walks into the town, 
if you like that status quo, if you like the injustice or the status that the lack of mercy in your community gave you, you were in for a rude awakening. Because when a prophet came to town, they were calling to come for repentance. And I think one of the ways we can consider this for ourselves is we could summarize what we believe by a, a capital big T theology. This is the things that we believe that we confess, even in times of confession here at church, all together corporately, that it's the thing that we believe. But then there's also the little t theology. The big t theology is what we believe, what God's word teaches. The little t theology is how we actually live that out. And oftentimes, that little t theology, that what we do, fails at practicing that spiritual discipline of justice and mercy. And where it fails is actually possibly apathy, just not caring, wanting to disconnect, wanting to go, hey, God's going to make all things new in the end anyway. Why care about justice and mercy now? Those are often the ways that we, we fail at that and we can have cynicism towards that. Or we can go the other way. And that little T theology, can, we can make all of the gospel about justice and not actually about who Jesus is or worshiping God or the ethic of the life that God desires for us to have. It's basically like a narrow road when we're talking about justice and mercy. And what we're actually given time and time again is that God's justice and mercy is far greater than we deserve, but something we have a hard time actually practicing ourselves. And I think one of the ways that we can often see this is the people that spend the most time with us are some of the people that it can be hardest to show mercy towards, to actually be patient towards. And so we need to hear what the Lord says And our hearts need to be adjusted to his word. This is what we see again and again throughout the Bible. Our justice falls short. We see this with the corrupt kings. We see this in the days of the prophets. That our justice, just like them, our justice often falls short. And the biggest difference we could give between like our justice, I referenced if we all wrote down a definition of justice and God's justice, is that throughout the Bible, what we see is that vengeance is the Lord's. He does not let the guilty go unpunished, but his justice always restores. His justice never actually stops at just a punishment. There's always a restorative element to his justice in his grace for his people, that he's actually doing something. Or we could summarize it in, in line with how Romans 8 talks about it, that all things are working together for the good of salvation. And so God's justice has that restorative element. We see this even as we've gone through the Ten Commandments as a church of how God commanded for the civil government of Israel to be structured. It was to be restorative. If I stole your cow, I now owe you the cow and what I would have gained, which was a cow. So I now owe you two cows if I stole your one cow. There's a restorative element that God gives for his people. The justice often looks very different than our own. But let's turn now, let's look at this second part of the passage again, and the second point in your bulletin of what does the Lord require? And so here's where we're going to get into much more of this justice and mercy, and even defining what this looks like. We've seen so far this context of what was going on. Why is God sending this prophet to his people? And it's this lack of justice and mercy. It's this failing to care for others. And so What should we do? What does the Lord require? And here we have, back to that courtroom analogy, here we have the people responding. 
So this is the, the plaintiff in the case. Micah has given his accusations. He's called his witnesses. God is sitting there as the judge. And here we have the, the people responding. Look with me again at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We see this, this listing of rhetorical questions that God's people are hearing this call for repentance and they're asking, well, what do we do? And we see this very poetically. We even see some exaggerations of 10,000 rivers of oil. The firstborn um, in a family was particularly notable because we were even talking about land before and inheritance. Whoever the oldest was would get a double portion to keep the family's name going. And so they would get double land. But their responsibilities, if we look in the Old Testament, was actually to care for the justice and the mercy of their family. So they're, they're not far off in the questions that they give back. But ultimately, what they're actually asking is, how should we worship? How then should we live? Because yes, our God has redeemed us. He has given us good leaders. He has cared for us, even in moments we didn't know it when someone was trying to curse us from a mountain range. He has been faithful to us inside the promised land and outside the promised land. How do we then respond? And what we actually see in this response from the people is that they're getting it, but not quite all the way. Because they're basically treating the, the sacrificial system, the, the worship that was set up for Israel, they're treating it like an entry fee or like a club membership of, hey, let, let me just get in. What, what do I got to do? What's the price? I'll pay it. And then can this go away? Can we not go into exile? Is it 20 bucks? Is it, is it my firstborn? How much oil would it cost to appease this God? And so they're actually missing that covenant relationship. They're treating God who's personal, who knows him, who calls them his treasured possession. They're treating him like the other gods of other nations. What do I got to do to buy him off? And instead, what we see is that there is this gracious act of God in preserving his people, in redeeming his people, that's already even been mentioned. And so the, the people that we see here get told, they get this answer from the Lord, or Micah speaking here. He has told you, oh man, what is good? This is verse eight. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So it's, it's not a new command. It's something that they've actually known. It's something that they were actually meant to be built around as a people. What do we do when we see all of this injustice and lack of mercy and brokenness? What do we do? How, how can we change it? Is there any hope for changing it? He's already told you what is good. And we can unpack this in a couple of ways. So we're going to talk about first justice and then mercy and then walking humbly with your God. And to do justice the way that scripture commonly refers to it isn't maybe the way that we think of like a, a legal justice with like a, a judge and they got arrested and there's evidence established. The, this, this justice, by all means, we could talk about a legal justice. 
um, in the Bible. But as we're talking about it as a spiritual discipline, we're focusing in on how that's the spiritual discipline of how we're actually supposed to live. And this justice is for the oppressed. To do justice is often to help someone in need. So there's these poor and marginalized people. This is what we can even think of um, as we're reading here back to what's happening with the prophets and the kings in in their context. This justice is to help someone in need. This is to be an advocate for someone whose rights are being violated. So yes, there was corrupt kings, but all of Israel was responsible for actually advocating and seeking justice. And this is what we actually see that God does. As we see in the Psalms and in Deuteronomy that that he cares for the poor and the widow. Or for a brief moment, consider Ruth, the Moabite woman. Nothing to her name comes into Israel. No farm to make food. No place to live. And God had provided a justice, a, a mercy to any people sojourning in the land. That they could actually go get food they could go to the threshing floor. And that's what we see happen, is this act of justice and mercy. This is how God established for his people to live. And so justice is something that one does. It's being committed to help those in need. And the second part in verse 8 is to love kindness. And this love kindness, this, this is talking about having or doing kindness. This is the the Hebrew word has said and has said is commonly translated in English as loyalty, mercy, fidelity, or steadfast love. Like we said in our uh, call to worship this morning. And so this mercy, I think if we pulled back out the cards, if we wrote down a definition of mercy, we probably wouldn't have wrote steadfast love or fidelity or loyalty. We probably think of acts of mercy when we hear the word mercy, but it includes so much more because this is actually talking about how we're formed as God's people. So there's the, the doing of justice and the mercy piece, this loving kindness. This implies helping someone in need of the place that it occupies in you, that it's actually part of your heart and affections, that it's actually a part of your character. Practicing justice is something that one does, but a lover of kindness, this has said, this steadfast love is something that one is. So this loving kindness is something that you are, and this practicing justice is something that you do. And if we have one, if we actually love kindness and love mercy, if we're actually formed, because all of this, we're coming, we keep coming back to worship in this spiritual discipline series, that we actually reflect who our God is. If, if our hearts are actually formed to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates, then of course we would love mercy. Our God has been so merciful towards us. How could we not be? He's saved us. He's redeemed us. He's been faithful to us even when we didn't know it. And he's been faithful to us inside and outside the promised land for the people in Micah's day. And so this, this mercy, this steadfast love is something that we should be. And all of this summarizes in that last sentence, that last little bit of, and to walk humbly with your God. See, this indicates that genuine fellowship and God saving his people as his treasured possession, as his beloved, 
as the, the, the redeemed of Christ's elect. And this, this walking humbly with your God, we have this covenant relationship that God makes with his people. And a covenant is something that's way more permanent than an ordinary contract and way more intimate than an ordinary relationship. And this covenant is to walk humbly with our God. This means, similar to that heart piece, that we actually accept what he says. That we value his vision and values that he gives us for life. That the fellowship with him, that God's people would actually be identified, not by abusing the poor or the marginalized, but by caring for them. And not that they would be known for selling protective passes from God. And that's actually what's going to end up happening to Israel, is God is actually going to lead them to a place where another nation, like they were selling passes, Yahweh protection passes, they're actually going to be conquered by another nation. We see God's justice there. And so this this walking humbly is recognizing our place that God has made us, how how he's called us, how he's formed us to be his people. And I think oftentimes for us, to kind of take a step back for a second, we often either emphasize justice or mercy. If we were to poll everybody, I'm sure we would kind of fall maybe 50-50 of, hey, which one's more important, justice or mercy? What, what do those actually look like in your life? And there's a good book I know Michael's mentioned before um, in sermons. Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, where he unpacks these different cultural values, uh, and he lists six of them. It's a wonderful book. I recommend the audio book. That's how I, uh, how I read it or listened to it. Um, but he gives this diagram with these six different cultural values around it. And typically, a culture either reflects justice or mercy. They're normally not wed together. And I think right now, we've typically lived in more of a, uh, a fairness and um, mercy-centered culture. And the interesting thing is how much our culture is shifting to talking about justice. And similar to before where I mentioned that, that narrow road, God's calling his people to be one and to do another. It's not actually them juxtaposed. You can have true justice and still practice mercy. You can practice mercy and still carry out justice. You can care for the oppressed. And this is near and dear to the heart of our God. So whether it's something like mercy ministry or caring for someone in a practical way, this is something that we're to continue to do. We see this even as an identifier in the New Testament, we see uh, James one twenty seven that true religion is to care for orphan and widows. Or we see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that the grace we've been saved by, not our own doing, it's a free gift of God, that we might actually walk in the way that God, the, the, the things that God has prepared beforehand for us. There's actually something that we do. And so Jonathan Haidt and his work goes through these different values and does this, does this analysis of that essentially a perfect society, a perfect culture, would have all six of these values held in tension. And it'd be more helpful if I could like show you guys a diagram right now. Um, but essentially, it ends up falling to three or four typically. And what we actually see is throughout the Bible is that all six of those values are actually taught and encouraged for God's people. God's trying to actually form for himself a people that practice healthy humanity. And justice and mercy is a part of that. Justice and mercy is a spiritual discipline because it changes the way that we live and ultimately it shows who our God is.
this link between these requirements given of what God has already previously told them to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with their God becomes very, very clear that this this antidote for the people that are not doing this is to first go back to what the Lord says, which is what this, this third cycle in Micah starts with, is to hear what the Lord says, and has he not already told you? So it's a call back to the, the covenant relationship that God has with his people. It's a call back to fall back in love with their Savior who redeemed them. It's a call back, if they're not practicing justice, to come back to actually, how has God saved you? How have you been shown mercy? Whereas uh, 1 Corinthians says, we, we can show comfort because we've first been comforted. And so this actually changes not only our households, but it changes all of our lives because the, the good news that we read here of hearing what the Lord says, we weren't saved from slavery in Egypt, but we've seen God's justice and mercy actually meet because justice and mercy come and kiss at Calvary. God's just demand for the sin of humanity is taken upon Christ. And it's an act of mercy and grace that saves us. He does not let the guilty go unpunished. And one of the beauties of the gospel is that God himself actually gives what he demands. And we're called to then be a people of justice and mercy. We're called to be the hands and feet of Christ. We're called to serve one another. Uh, In Galatians 6, we're called to bear one another's burdens. And one of the central ways that it actually identifies in Galatians that we do that well is that we first love one another. And oftentimes that's really hard. If sympathy is your motivation for justice and ministry, it fails. Love is the motivation. That, that steadfast love that has said, that abounding fidelity, that unity. And this is one of the ways that the, the church is to be identified. That not only for each other, but then that it, that actually overflows. And what we see in Micah is God's people, there was not an overflow. They weren't people who were radically just and merciful showing the character of their God, reflecting and resembling what their hearts longed for and desired. Instead, it was showing their sin and corruption. So to do justice and mercy means we have to first know what the Lord says, how he defines it. And the justice and mercy that we read in Scripture, what we continuously encounter, and I can confess first, is I constantly encounter something that is a justice not like my own. I constantly encounter a justice that has more mercy than I could ever see, and I encounter mercy that could never possibly be deserved again and again and again. This is what our God does for his people. Justice and mercy kiss at Calvary for you. They they come together, and God gives what he demands. And so for us as a church to practice justice and mercy, this means that we would actually need to first hear what the Lord says. How does God define that we should practice justice and mercy? What does that look like for God's people to be a people that genuinely love? Which means, by the way, to have that genuine love means there has to be relationship. So that justice and mercy can't be an in and out thing of no relationship. It actually means that we would know each other, that we, in that bearing of one another's burdens, that we would walk together, that we would live together. And so while, while Micah's result for the people of God, as he comes in, this, in these cycles of 
doom and judgment and hope and restoration. We're a people as a church. We know that hope and restoration. We, we know where the story goes from the exile. We know God's making a way to be with his people with a baby in a manger to the cross on Calvary to the resurrection of Easter morning to the promise that he is coming back to make all things new. We don't look forward to, to hope and restoration. We aren't waiting to be driven out of our homes by exile. But I, I think for us, as we consider the spiritual discipline of justice and mercy, there's a, the, the word from Micah is a good word for us because we can look at it and ask the question, how do we actually do this? Are we doing this well? Are we doing this by what God has revealed or by what we desire? Are we doing this in a way that glorifies him? Amen. Our Father, uh, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, we, um, we admit that there's ways that we fail to show justice and mercy. Um, Lord, that there's ways that um, we can share the call to repentance from Micah. Uh, Lord, that as a spiritual discipline, there, there's ways that um, we fail to actually acknowledge the, the great justice and mercy that we have experienced. Uh, Lord, you you have a restorative justice. You have a a love and a mercy that knows no ends, that continues on. And Lord, we need it. We need it every day in our lives. We need it for broken relationships. We need it for broken marriages. We need it for frustrating moments as parents. We need it to be a good worker. We need it to do any aspect of life, Lord. We need justice and mercy, Lord, but not a justice and mercy like ours. We need your justice and mercy. We need to be changed by the power of your spirit that we might love the things that you love. Amen.